Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacardvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacardvelo, Georgia. You can find us on our website, historyofsacardvelo.com, or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sacardvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West, Episode 4, Flanders and the Rise of Towns. Today we're going to step away from Burgundy and explore another component of the lands of the Valois Dukes, Flanders. Flanders was arguably more important to the development of the Valois Burgundian state than Burgundy itself was. The Low Countries in general, and the county of Flanders particularly, were the economic centers of Northwest Europe, and the income that the county generated paid for much of the splendor that the Burgundian court would become known for. There's a lot to cover in this episode, and I think it is best broken up into two general sections. First, a brief overview of economic development and urbanization in medieval Europe with a focus on Flanders, and second, a history of Flanders in the latter half of Capetian France. I have mentioned the Low Countries a handful of times so far on the show without much of an explanation, so here it is. Today the Low Countries generally refer to the countries of Belgium and the Netherlands, and sometimes Luxembourg, depending on who you ask. The reason that these countries fall into this categorization has much to do with the course of Valois-Burgundy, and the modern borders of these countries roughly line up with Charles the Bold's northern holdings by the end of his life. In episode 2 of the podcast, I laid out the borders of West Francia following the death of Emperor Louis the Pious, being roughly the Meuse, Saône, and Rhone rivers. However, after a number of conflicts between East and West Francia, and the absorption of Lotharingia by East Francia, the border between the halves of the Carolingian Empire and the far north was set at the Scheldt River. Today, the region of Flanders and Belgium covers roughly the top half of the country, but the county of Flanders in the Middle Ages was very loosely the western half of modern Flanders combined with part of the Nord department of France. This put Flanders right on the edge of West Francia, although there were small portions of Flanders in Middle Francia as well. 
Its position between France, the German Empire, and England contributed to its independent streak as well as its importance as a commercial center. So let's take a second to talk about medieval commerce. Last episode, I briefly, if somewhat awkwardly, mentioned the Dukes of Burgundy allowing Italian merchants to travel through their lands. Today, we'll look at why that mattered. In medieval France, the biggest commercial events were the fairs in Champagne. These events would last for weeks at a time and hosted merchants from England to North Africa and Spain to Byzantium. Some of the principal participants in the Champagne fairs were the merchants of northern Italy and Flanders. Italy served as a major link between the fairs and the rest of the world, connecting the trade networks of Western Europe with those of Eastern Europe and eventually to the Silk Road. Flanders participated in this trade, but more on a local level, as Flemish merchants of the 11th and 12th centuries generally transported their goods from the county to the fairs, and the most important of the goods they transported was, of course, cloth. I really like how Simon Winder, in his book Lotharingia, puts it, quote, The genius of cloth was that it created a trans-European industry of stuff that did not perish, unlike food, but which wore out from use and therefore needed replenishment. The history of Flanders is intimately tied to cloth. The production and trade of cloth was by far the most important thing to the county. We can see by the end of the 15th century about a third of Flanders' population was living in towns, a huge number for the time, and the production and trade of cloth was the main economic lifeline of the towns and cities of Flanders. The process of producing cloth employed a great number of workers in many different roles, from dyeing to weaving to fulling and many more. Cloth generated the wealth of Flanders, and it tied Flanders to England and its vast supply of wool. If you want to learn more of the specifics of cloth production and how it shaped medieval Flanders, I highly recommend episode 9 of the History of the Netherlands podcast. But we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves. For now, it's important to note that while most urban centers were generally producing everything they needed in middling quantities, the towns and cities of Flanders were producing huge amounts of cloth. While we are focusing on Flanders today, a general look at medieval European urbanization is now called for. Beginning in the late 900s and lasting until the arrival of the Black Death in the 1300s, we see a general rise of economic activity in Europe. There are many contributors as to why this happened. The raids of the Vikings had slowed in the north over this period, and central authority was beginning to increase. The Peace of God movement was underway, and while war and conflict was by no means eliminated, this period can be seen as relatively peaceful, at least compared to what came before. Of course, peace alone doesn't make for an economic boom. There are also demographic and geographic factors, such as steady population increase and the increase in clearing and exploitation of the forests of Europe. In the Low Countries specifically, we see less land coming from the clearing of forests, but rather by the building of dikes and reclamation of land from the sea. As trade and economic activity increased, so did urbanization. The 1100s and 1200s saw a resurgence in cities in Western Europe not seen since the days of the Roman Empire. New ones popped up along trade routes, and old ones began to expand past their walls. This rise of urbanization was not uniform. Some regions became urban hubs, while others remained almost completely rural with a few cities dotting the landscape. A few of these hubs of urbanization were northern Italy, northern Germany, the Rhineland, Champagne, and the Low Countries. In these hubs, it was not uncommon for cities to be a day's march from each other. 
It's also worth noting that by the end of the Carolingian period, the lands of Hugh Capet around Paris and Orléans were also quite urbanized for the time. And while this region as a whole wouldn't grow with the same fervor, Paris would continue to grow, not only in size, but also in both political and economic importance. Now let's take a moment to analyze what makes a city different from the surrounding countryside. There are obvious answers such as greater population density, the outsourcing of agriculture and import of food, and increased and more varied economic activity. But what I want to emphasize here is the place of the city in the feudal world. A few episodes back, I gave a brief outline of what feudalism was and how feudal society broke down into three orders. The laboratores, those who worked, the oratores, those who prayed, and the bellatores, those who fought. The bellatores, by virtue of being the ones with all the swords, were also the political rulers. The oratores were the clergy and could range from simple monks or deacons to powerful bishops. And the laboratories were the peasants who worked the land and were sometimes conscripted to be used as fodder against knights who opposed their lord. The towns did not fit into this dynamic. Towns were generally split between citizens of the towns, often known as burghers, and the rest. Burghers could be anything from master artisans to merchants to bankers, but were defined by a few things. Namely, they lived in the town and they generally had some independent means of sustaining themselves. The burghers enjoyed many rights and freedoms in the towns that the peasants in the countryside did not. Today's middle class is descended from the medieval burghers, and in fact the word bourgeois comes from the word burger. There were often distinctions within the burger class, and while the burghers did enjoy self-government, the rule of towns often resembled plutocracy, or rule by wealth, more than democracy. The upper rungs of the burger class were usually known as patricians. These were the richest of the rich in towns and tended to have total control over the government of the towns and also tended to own much of the land both in and around the town. In addition, they also financed much of the town's industrial activity. Going forward, I'll be using burger and patrician more or less interchangeably, but know that not all burghers were in the political elite. However, burghers were not the only inhabitants of the towns. There were also many non-citizens who in fact almost always outnumbered the burghers. While the non-citizens did not enjoy the same rights and freedoms of the burghers, they were still in a privileged position compared to the peasants and the serfs, or unfree peasants, in the countryside. Although they did not have access to the levers of power and justice in the town, the non-citizens enjoyed freedom of movement and did not have to worry about the petty tyranny of the local lord. In fact, many of the non-citizens of the towns were once serfs who fled their lord's estate, and as the burghers would eventually become the bourgeois, these non-citizens were the origins of the urban working class. However, as towns grew more focused on commerce and industrial production, the power of these urban workers grew as well. By the time our story gets going, in many towns the urban workers gained the rights of citizenship, and eventually they would gain political control to rival the standing of the patricians. Towns were able to offer protection to their residents because the town as an institution also held rights. These rights were generally given by lords on a case-by-case -case basis, sometimes willingly to ensure the goodwill of the town, sometimes they were granted by the lord in order to found a town where no settlement existed, and sometimes they were granted unwillingly after a military or political conflict. But, more often than not, they were granted in exchange for the ability of the lord to request gifts or aids from the city. 
The rights that defined a town were often wrapped up into a town charter, which was the physical embodiment of the town's rights and privileges. These charters were prized by the burghers of the towns, and they often saw their individual honor as something that was guaranteed by the charter. Like with the granting of charters, their contents also varied from town to town, but there were a few common threads between them. The first and most important was the right to self-governance and the right to exercise justice within the town. These rights were often not absolute, and much of the conflict between lords and towns stemmed from competing visions of jurisdiction. These rights, however, were what allowed towns to offer safe haven to the runaway serfs mentioned earlier. This self-government often gave the people of the towns much greater personal freedom than that enjoyed by the peasantry, hence the old Dutch saying, city air makes free. The other rights were more or less the standard feudal packages, the rights to either be free from or to exercise certain tolls and fees and even impose taxes. They also included the right to hold markets and sometimes the right to exclusively trade certain goods in a region, usually known as staple rights. Also included was the right of the towns to build walls and form militias, two things that greatly increased their ability to hold out against a feudal lord's army. Now back to Flanders. I mentioned the cloth trade earlier, and it's worth delving deeper into it. We hear of the wool trade between England and the three principal towns of Flanders, Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, around the time that Hugh Capet became king of France in the records of the English king, Ethelred the Unready. While this regional trade established Flanders as a regional economic powerhouse, Europe's further integration into the international trade networks in the 1100s launched the county, or at least its towns, into the global arena. This is not to say that before the 1100s, Europe was completely cut off from the rest of the world. In fact, throughout the Middle Ages, we see evidence of long-distance trade. But from the 1100s on, the volume of this trade increased immensely. And while cloth was the most important aspect of the Anglo-Flemish relationship, it was not the only one. The Flemish merchants who had started out by trading cloth became the outlet of many of England's goods into the Eurasian market. So while the clothiers were extremely wealthy and influential in high medieval Flanders, the merchants were the true elite of the cities. This elite would come to control much of the sea trade of northern Europe, as we see Venice, Genoa, and other Italian cities coming to dominate the Mediterranean sea trade, we also see the cities of Flanders begin to dominate trade in the North Sea. Here, however, Flanders did not have a monopoly, as the cities of northern Germany, driven by much of the same factors, would eventually form the Hanseatic League to contest Flemish and other Low Country shipping. That being said, the relationship between the Hansa and Flanders was not always one of rivalry. Many of the cities of the Hanseatic League had trading outposts in Flanders, and many Flemish cities had outposts of their own in return. As the 12th century turned to the 13th, we see a change in how commerce moved in Europe. Volume was increasing, and sea trade routes were beginning to outpace land routes. The fairs of Champagne gradually began to lose their prominence, and certain cities throughout Europe became hubs of commerce. In Flanders, the primary hub was Bruges. This shift in trade patterns caused many foreign merchants to set up shop in Flanders, and also caused Flemish merchants to begin to expand their reach. Now Flemish merchants were not only in England and France, but also in Italy, the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, Portugal, Hungary, and basically everywhere else. Now, while the cities of Flanders were tied extremely closely to England via trade, they were still a fief of France. 
The rivalry between Capetian France and Plantagenet England thus meant that Flanders would be a front in what some call the First Hundred Years' War. When this conflict divided the county against itself, the feudal lords of Flanders often backed the French monarchy, and the burghers often backed the English. With all the focus given so far to the towns of Flanders, you might be under the impression that the title of Count was a relatively weak one, but in fact the opposite was true. While it is true that the towns exhibited much effort to wrest independence from their overlord, the Count of Flanders was still one of the most powerful lords in France because of the wealth that the towns provided. The Count of Flanders was not able to raise taxes from the towns in the same manner as he did over the peasantry, but he was able to request aids from them. And due to the sheer amount of wealth that the towns held, the aids that the Count got from the towns tended to outmatch the taxes that the other magnates of France could levy. In the French feudal hierarchy, only the king had more economic heft than the Count of Flanders. So although I did just mention that the counts would often back the French monarchy against the English in order to levy that power against the towns, just as often they sided with the towns against the French central government and used their considerable wealth to assert their independence. Last episode, I mentioned how the growth of the power of the Capetian Dukes of Burgundy mirrored that of the Capetian Kings of France. The kings of France were able to absorb territory, either by inheritance or conquest. They were able to send out bailiffs and seneschals to meter out justice, collect taxes, and impose royal authority on the counties and duchies of France. And they were able to turn the old Germanic assemblies from a rival power center to the monarch into another tool available to be used by them. It's truly impressive how the kings of France were able to create a centralized government out of the lands around Paris and Orléans and the title of king. This is proven by the counterexample of the German emperors, who never had the same level of control over their kingdom. All that being said, the kings of France were never all-powerful. Absolute rulers, they were not. The kings could flex their muscle, but at the end of the day, they still relied on feudal obligation above bureaucratic efficiency to accomplish most things. And in the lands controlled by powerful dukes and counts, they had no direct authority and almost no indirect authority. The two most independent of these lands were the Duchy of Aquitaine, later Guienne, ruled by the kings of England and the county of Flanders. There is a lot to say about Guienne, but it's best left for next episode's run-up to the Hundred Years' War. So for now, we will start our narrative with the ascension of Philip IV to King of France in 1285. Philip's crowning as king would have broad implications in both Aquitaine and Flanders. For now, I'll focus on Flanders, but we'll have to mention the conflict that's about to erupt in Aquitaine from time to time, as the two are very much connected. Philip spent the first decade or so of his reign strengthening the power of the throne, and in 1293 he decided to flex that power. After a naval skirmish between English and French sailors, Philip summoned the English king to Paris, but as a duke of France and a vassal rather than as an equal. He used a combination of forceful diplomacy and outright deceit to get the English king to agree to temporarily give up part of Aquitaine as a piece of feudal theater. However, this relinquishing of territory was more than symbolic, and Philip refused to return it. This seizure enraged the English king and made another Anglo-French conflict all but inevitable. As Philip was alienating his powerful southern vassal, he was also alienating a powerful northern one. Philip had been working to extend his power over Flanders since the early years of his reign, a fact that Guy, the Count of Flanders, was very put off by. 
He took the opportunity that an eruption of Anglo-French hostilities in 1294 presented to ally with the English in hopes that with their aid he could gain independence, or at least de facto independence. Unfortunately for Guy, the war did not provide quite the distraction to Philip that he was hoping it would, and he was quickly imprisoned and forced to officially relinquish his territories to the crown and rule them as a beneficiary count rather than as a hereditary one. If you'll recall from earlier episodes, this means that Guy now held the county as a grant from the king rather than by right of blood. Unsurprisingly, this situation did not sit well with Guy, who, like all medieval nobles, was obsessed with honor. A few years later, he renewed his English alliance. Philip responded to this by annexing Flanders into the royal domain and sending an army to make the nominal annexation actual. This turn of events caused much of the Anglo-French conflict to move from Aquitaine to Flanders. In response to the movement of the French army, the English sent an army to Ghent in order to reinforce their ally. As this was happening, Philip managed to take the cities of Lille, Douai, and Cassel, which although not mentioned thus far, were the preeminent cities of southwestern Flanders. Not long after the fall of Lille, Bruges surrendered to Philip. After the whirlwind of action in late 1297, an armistice was mediated by the Pope with the French controlling roughly the western two-thirds of the county and the English and Guy controlling the eastern third. During this break in the fighting, the English withdrew due to domestic turmoil and left Guy to fend for himself. When the armistice expired in 1300, Philip took his opportunity to strike. In less than six months, the French were able to conquer the rest of Flanders and imprison Guy and his family. So, remember how I mentioned earlier that the burghers of Flanders generally sided with the English and the lords generally sided with the French? Well, I still stand by that statement even though I'm about to contradict it for the second time this episode. See, in those conflicts between the lords and the burghers mentioned earlier, well, sometimes the English weren't really interested in getting involved. Therefore, the burghers would often turn to the French king and use him as a counterweight against the count. This kind of alliance was actually what ticked off Guy in the first place and led him to his initial alliance with the English. Really, it's important to take note of all the parties of Flemish politics. There were the urban working class, the peasantry, the burghers, divided among the patricians and the others, the Flemish nobility, and the court of the Count of Flanders, all of which allied with and against each other at various times and also with and against both the English and French crowns not to mention all the inner-city rivalry of Flanders. All of these parties would be continually active in politics and war over the course of our story, and I promise to do my best to make it clear who is fighting who every time sides form and dissolve. All this is to say is that when Philip conquered Flanders, he had many supporters among the patriciate. Going forward, these will be known as the Lilies, named for the French Fleur de Lis. However, just as the burghers used the power of the French king to offset the power of the count, the urban working class tended to ally with the count to offset the power of the burghers. Going forward, this faction will be known as the Clause, named for the Clause of the Lion on the coat of arms of the Flemish counts. Once in control of Flanders, Philip naturally allied with the Lilies. However, now as the leapfrogging system of checks and balances was gone with the imprisonment of the Flemish count, the Lilies began to oppress the clause more than was tolerable. After about two years of patrician domination, the urban guilds formed an alliance with some of the rural nobility, and an uprising began. Like many such uprisings, this one began with mass violence inspired by years of resentment. 
In 1302, the Claws of Bruges rose up and killed as many French and lilies as they could find in the city. Soon the flame of rebellion spread across the whole county and all of Flanders was in revolt. Philip once again sent an army to Flanders and this time faced off against William of Ulick, a grandson of Guy. As much of the patriciate and Flemish nobility were lilies, the Flemish forces were composed almost completely of light, pike-wielding infantry compared to the French force composed primarily of heavily armed knights and supported by crossbowmen and their own infantry. When the forces first met at Courtrai, modern Courtric, the Flemings against all odds demolished the French. This battle would become known as the Battle of the Golden Spurs after the many spurs that the Flemish army collected in its aftermath. There is much to say about a collection of Flemish commoners defeating the cream of the French nobility. For one, it served as an inspiration to the many more city-based Flemish uprisings that we will see throughout our narrative. From a historiographic point of view, many viewed Golden Spurs as one of the first indicators that the Bellatore's model of medieval warfare was beginning to fade, and that infantry was beginning to overtake cavalry as the dominant mode of combat, kind of like an inverse Adrianople although I personally think that's too broad of a generalization to make. Although, just as Golden Spurs is a preamble to our main narrative, another set of battles featuring townsmen infantry prevailing over feudal armies will close out our narrative 150 years later. But I digress. After this defeat, one direct effect we see is the overthrow of many burgher regimes in the city and the rise of democratic, well, relatively democratic, systems of government in many of Flanders' major cities led by the guilds. The guilds are another interesting facet of medieval urban life, and I won't dive as deep into them right now as I perhaps ought to, as we're already close to my average episode length, and we still have more than 30 years of history to cover. But it is important to get a sense of them. There were three ranks of members of the guilds. At the bottom was the apprentice, who spent years working for a guildmaster as little more than an indentured servant. After some time as an apprentice, a worker graduated to the rank of journeyman, and was considered a member of the guild who was a complete craftsman. Sometimes journeymen took to the road and worked, and sometimes they worked for a master. After some years as a journeyman, a craftsman could apply to become a master of the guild. If admitted to the ranks of the masters, a craftsman could open his own shop, teach apprentices, and hire journeymen. All the members of guilds, from apprentices to grandmasters, were sworn to keep the trade secrets that the guilds held. The guilds, however, were not always united forces. Sometimes the masters or grandmasters of the guilds were burghers, and quite often their interests diverged from those of apprentices and journeymen. That being said, more often than not, master craftsmen, while they may have been burghers in the sense of being free citizens of the town, did not enjoy the same access to power that the patricians did. As the towns of Flanders became more and more the cloth-producing centers of Europe, more foreign merchants arrived. This caused a loosening of the grip that the Flemish merchants held over the economies of the cities and an increase to that of the guildsmen. However, this change in economic power was not initially reflected in politics. Throughout the 13th century, the patricians of Flanders passed laws and created rulings that calcified their class not only to prevent wealthy guildsmen from entering it, but also merchants who had made their fortune more recently. As the 13th century neared its end, these wealthy and influential groups began to join forces in attempts to seize the power that they felt entitled to. 
when the guilds finally, if somewhat temporarily, took control of the governments of the cities of Flanders, it was really the masters of the guilds taking control, allied with the wealthy non-patricians. Still though, the new city governments tended to be much more representative than the old patrician governments, even if they did tend to focus more on guildsmen than the other members of the urban working class and urban poor. Now, back to the narrative. The Flemings were riding high after their victory over the princes of France, and decided to go big or go home by invading the jointly held counties of Hainaut, Holland, and Zeeland. For a long time, Flanders and Hainaut, Holland, Zeeland were tense rivals, their obvious geopolitical rivalries being neighbors who competed over the same trade routes, wool supply, and territory, was supplemented by the fact that the Counts of Flanders and the Counts of Hainaut, Holland, Zeeland were blood enemies. The feud between the Dampierre Counts of Flanders and the Avesnes Counts of Hainaut, Holland, Zeeland is an interesting one, but for the most part, all we need to know is that the Dukes of Burgundy will render the point moot by eventually annexing all of their territories. The Flemish were initially successful in their conquests, but never one to miss an opportunity, Philip IV allied with the Count of Hainaut, Holland, Zeeland, and together the Count and King eventually put the Flemish back in Flanders. Not willing to stop there, Philip kept up the pressure and was eventually able to reassert his control over his wayward fief. Well, mostly. Between Philip's wars with the Flemish and his wars with the English, France was too drained both financially and militarily to impose direct rule onto Flanders, so a compromise of sorts was reached. Flanders would remain a fief of France but be functionally independent. In return for its independence, Flanders would cede the cities of Lille, Douai, and Bouvines to the crown, creating a Gallicant or French-speaking Flanders under the control of the king, and, more importantly, pay a huge war indemnity and an annual fine, as well as send soldiers to the king when he required them, offsetting all the trouble that Philip went through to pacify Flanders. Guy of Flanders died in French custody, so it is up to his son Robert to collect the taxes. This job was neither an easy nor a popular one, and Robert was never a fan of the French and may have been one of the principal voices calling for his father to resist French rule in the first place. Nevertheless, he began his rule by ensuring the collection of taxes to pay the French indemnity. However, after a few years as count, he began to resist French hegemony again and seemed to harbor some irredentism for Gallican Flanders. Robert renewed his father's old alliance with England and started his own rebellion, but this one was short-lived. In the end, he made peace with the crown, but from then on repeatedly dragged his feet when collecting the indemnity for France. Robert was predeceased by his oldest son, so when he died, Flanders went to his grandson, Louis of Nevers. Louis also ruled, unsurprisingly, the county of Nevers, which was right next to the Duchy of Burgundy, which he had inherited from his father, who in turn inherited it from his mother, and the county of Rethel, which he had inherited from his own mother. These three inheritances are a sign of the changing times of the late Middle Ages. Now, rather than inheritance splitting up lands, it served to unite them. This trend did not emerge with the Counts of Flanders, but they are a good example of it. As the centuries kept moving along, this trend would continue, and the Valois Dukes would greatly benefit from it during their century in power. Louis spent most of his life before becoming Count among the French court, and so broke with his family's traditional anti-French posture. He married Margaret of France, a daughter of King Philip V. Louis's pro-French stance caused him to collect taxes with much more relish than his grandfather, and before long, another rebellion broke out. 
This rebellion, unlike the previous ones we covered, was not led or encouraged by the Counts of Flanders, but it was in fact against the Count. Like with many revolts throughout history, this one was triggered by a poor harvest. That, combined with the heavy tax burden and general anti-French sentiment, caused independent peasant revolts to spring up across Flanders and eventually unify with support from some members of the lower nobility and many burghers and guildsmen throughout Flanders who had been feeling the brunt of the Count's taxation. The revolt gained enough momentum that Louis was forced to negotiate with the rebels. A peace was made, but the underlying tensions were not addressed, and the revolt flared up again a year later. In this phase of the revolt, the guilds decided to flex their power and took the lead from the peasantry. Louis was imprisoned, and it took the excommunication of the rebels and a threat from the French king to intervene to get the two sides back at the negotiating table. Unfortunately for Louis, and France in general, in 1328, the Capetian king Charles IV died without a direct heir, and after a brief succession crisis that would eventually spiral out of control, but that's a story for another day, Philip of Valois was proclaimed king. The guildsmen of Flanders took the opportunity that the new regime brought with it to reignite their rebellion, but the new king of France seemed just as willing to help Louis as the old king was. Philip of Valois led an army to Flanders and thoroughly trounced the rebels. He then returned to Paris and left Louis securely in charge of his county. In the aftermath of his return to power, Louis decided to take the towns down a peg or six. He confiscated property belonging to the rebels and voided the charters of the towns of Flanders with the exception of Ghent, which had refused to join the rebellion. As mentioned earlier, medieval towns jealously guarded their rights and privileges, and Louis's ability to cancel them demonstrates the totality of Philip's victory over the rebels. In the aftermath of the victory, Bruges, Courtrai, and Ypres, the principal rebel towns, were all forced to tear down their walls. Louis would rule Flanders for the next decade without any major revolts flaring up, although the cities continued to harbor serious grievances towards him. His luck, however, would come to an end with the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War. Despite his county's reliance on the English wool trade, Louis knew that he owed his comital office to the kings of France. Therefore, when the Hundred Years' War broke out, Louis maintained his traditional allegiance to France. This, however, did not sit well with the kings of England. England decided to put Flanders under a trade embargo, and fearing for their livelihoods, the burghers and guildsmen rose up against Louis once again. This time, Louis could not count on the French king to keep him in power, as the kings of France were dealing with bigger fish. Louis was forced out of Flanders in 1339 and would never return, dying at the Battle of Crecy in 1346. We will discuss Flanders' role in the Hundred Years' War next time, so get ready. We're also going to dive into the tension between the royal houses of Capet and Plantagenet, the transition of the French throne from Capet to Valois, and the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. It's going to be a doozy. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it five stars on your platform of choice and tell your friends about it. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me on twitter.com slash Burgundy or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com and the podcast now has a website at granddukesofthewest.com.